Hi, this is Tim Stafford, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. My guest on Bluegrass Jam Along this week is somebody all of you will know for all sorts of different reasons. Um, he has won multiple IBM A awards, both as a songwriter, um, as a producer for a record of the year. He's won Song of the Year. He's played guitar with one of the most popular bands in the world of bluegrass. He, he's a founder member of one of the most popular bands in the world of bluegrass. Um, Dan Taminsky described him as probably one of the greatest rhythm guitarists who's ever walked the planet. And he gave Adam Steffi his first mandolin lesson. My guest this week on Bluegrass Jam Along is Tim Stafford. Tim, it's great to have you here. Great to be here, Paul. Thanks so much for, for having me. I appreciate it. That's, um, that's the coolest of stuff. And I could talk to you probably for an hour about any of those individual things. But I think the most recent thing, which is really cool, is you have just done the first annual Blue Highway Fest. Yeah, we did. And, um, you know, I've, and I'm, I'm, you know, I called you Paul because <laughs> I was thinking of, of somebody else. Uh, sorry. Uh, uh, but I know you're Matt. So I could be Paul. Cool. It's, all, it's all good. <laughs> if you want to be, I was thinking of Paul McCartney, so that's not a problem at all. I mean, it's I'll like, take that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the festival was a huge success this year. Uh, we could have used more people, but, you know, first year, it's really hard to do that. But our lineup was just incredible, you know. Sam Bush, uh, Jerry Douglas, and the Earls of Leicester. Uh, Dan Tominski was there for two days. Larry Sparks, Seldom Seen, Balsam Range, Sierra Hall. We had Daryl Scott. Uh, we had Scythian. We had uh, a lot of fun bands. Uh, the Traveling McCurries were there. And Tommy Emanuel did a kickoff concert for us on uh, Thursday. And that was a ton of fun, man. We, I, I mean, everybody was just so pleased, the artists and the fans, with the way that the festival went for the first year especially. And uh, the town of Big Stone Gap was an amazing partner, and they're all in on this festival. They really want to do it again. So we're already planning for next year. It looks like it's going to be the end of July next year. And um, a lot of the same artists have already wanted said they've already wanted to come back. So I think it's going to be an ongoing thing. And, uh, wow, we never thought we'd be in a situation with, uh, with our own festival, but I'm really glad it's happened. And after a couple of years of very little live music, it must feel extra special to, to be at a festival and, and see the people come and see the bands and just all be together again. Man, you have no idea. It's just so cool uh, to uh, to experience that again. And, and have our name up there is just really surreal. You know, we see um, after almost 30 years together, it's a pretty cool way to, you know, enter that phase of our careers to see our name and, and have it, you know, be a, a major festival. And and I think the word is kind of out on it now because we, uh, we found out the whole area was sold out for the same weekend next year, just a few weeks ago, before they even knew what the dates were going to be for next year so it's very cool wow. and uh, it's, it's looking like it's going to be a, a really big event ongoing and you said you sort of mentioned how you know how long the band's been together that 
if my maths is right, the year after next would be your thirtieth anniversary year. So that'd be an amazing year to to have this sort of the third year of your <laughs> festival to celebrate thirty years as a band. Yeah, that would be very cool. I, I hadn't even thought about it like that, but yeah, two uh, two years from now will be our thirtieth year of playing. If you add it up, because we our first real year with playing was ninety five, and the band started in ninety four. So yeah, I hope we can hold everything together. Through who knows what's going to happen, man. You never know in this business, you know. And um, and what else is going on with Blue Highway at the moment? Are you guys working on like more material? If you've just been focusing on the festival? No, I mean the we've never come back from the pandemic. And I don't think a lot of bands have. It's not all the way back uh, as far as shows are way down. But we have been doing singles. That seems to be the format that has emerged from the pandemic as the favored. Format. So we recorded uh, six songs last year, and we picked two of those out to be the first two singles. And uh, the second one is getting ready to come out uh, first of December. And the first one uh, was a song I wrote called uh, "On the Roof of the World," it's a crazy uh, Sherpa uh, mountain climbing song, and. Uh, <laughs> Not something you hear every day in bluegrass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where did that come from? What was the inspiration behind that? Well, I had the melody, and I really wanted it to be a, a cool idea, and I was thinking of pitching it to Tom Utes or one of my other co-writers about, you know, see if they had something. And then we were getting ready to go in the studio, and I thought, well, I'm going to lose this opportunity. So I had been looking at a uh, an article online. I think it was from uh, the... Uh, I think it was the National Geographic Society um, story about Tibet. And, of course, it's Tibet's called the Roof of the World. And the uh, the article was about conditions for the, the natives there and uh, how they would herd the sheep across frozen lakes in the wintertime. And, the, and uh, you know, how they're actually are Sherpas from Tibet. Most of them come from Nepal. But they, uh, I decided to construct a fictional narrative about one who came from Tibet who misses his home, but he's a guide for Everest hikers and he, he takes an exhibition up and they get, they run into a storm and they don't make it back down. So it's a tragic story, of course, perfect for bluegrass. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so yeah, that's, it came from an online article that I was reading, uh, uh, for the, but I love the phrase on the roof of the world. That's um, just, you know, brings up all kinds of other images to people, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And this, there is the, like you were saying about the, the single as a format, there's something about, there's all sorts of, you know, there's all sorts of things we can say about the world of streaming and how the industry's changed. But the idea that you can put out something meaningful that doesn't need to be an hour long or 45 minutes long, even like Dan Tominsky's recent. Tony Rice tribute EP um, is a great example of that, and it's I think it's it's really nice that people can release something in a format that makes sense to them, rather than feel they've got to fill a CD or they have to have fifteen tracks. Or yeah, I think that DJs are slowly getting used to it. It's uh, they've been so used to the album format for so long. There are advantages to that format because a lot of times the uh, I mean, you could suggest before 
what you wanted DJs to play. And a lot of times the labels would say, okay, which tracks do you want to focus on? But a lot of times they would pick the ones they like and they would play it and it would happen organically. You know, So maybe a song that you didn't even think of as a single from your album would actually get more airplay. And uh, that happened a little bit on our last record that we put out on Rounder uh, somewhere far away. Um, they started playing uh, uh, a song that Wayne Taylor and I wrote called, uh, let's say, uh, Ain't No Better, Ain't No Worse. And uh, <laughs> we didn't intend for that at all. That was sort of our up-tempo Jimmy Martin-style bluegrass number for the record. But Kyle Campbell started playing it on Sirius, and it picked up steam from there, and people started playing it. You know, That's cool. That's a really cool way that you can, you know, uh, I know back when our first record came out, there were no suggestions about what to play from Rebel, but radio DJs picked up in the gravel yard right away, mm. and it became the one that people played. That and Lonesome Pine and a few others, you know, they picked the, they picked the singles. But you know, this way, you've got a song you really believe in. It's good you have more options to get it out there and people listen to it. So. Yeah, and so how, just curious. So the the song that you won Song of the Year for in two thousand and eight was through the window of a train, wasn't it? And was that did you know with that one sort of from the outset that was going to be sort of one of the standout tracks of the, on the record? Is it just one of those things that you put a bunch of songs together and just see what floats to the surface? Yeah, we had it's just like every album we would get together and throw out songs, you know. And there were a lot of songs from that that particular album that we really liked. Um, where Did the Morning Go, um, Two Soldiers. There were a bunch of songs that, that we liked there, but I think everybody thought Through the Window of a Train was like going to be the standout cut. So we, that's, And it also it sounded like a good record title, so it ended up being the record. But Rounder really pushed it, as I recall, to be the single from the record. Um, at first, we were going to call the record Life of a Traveling Man, which I think is the second song on the record. No, it's the first song on the record. And Window of the Train's the second song. So, but, and we did think about that. I thought that would be pretty cool, but we were sort of split and like three of us decided, hey, we'd rather have Through the Window of the Train. So, it almost didn't become the one that people were, that was pushed, you know, so. Uh, but, I like the other song too, so, whatever, people play anything of ours, I don't care what it is you know it's just well if you're playing something it's, it's a win-win and i guess you must get that i mean i don't know whether you tend to play songs live before you record them or if you record the record and then go out and tour it but you must the sort of reaction of fans to to songs at a show you must be interesting yeah. sometimes just to see what people pick up on we do both ways uh, we have over the years we've played them first to see what people like and then sometimes we just pick the ones that we want to put out there and then we end up doing them. You know, people have already heard them uh, when we play them for the first time. So uh, it's cool. Um, but sometimes, you know, you do get a fan reaction to a song. So you end up sort of promoting that one because uh, it's going to be the song that people want to hear. Um, and, and you can't really ignore that. You're smart not to ignore that. Um, so, yeah, 
And it sounds like just from things I've I've sort of heard you say in interviews and bits and pieces I've read that um, actually writing was a, a big bit of the way you spent sort of the couple of years of the pandemic. You've you, I think I read somewhere wrote more than a hundred songs over the course of being at home with various people. And was that a was it a case of just you've got time to write? And did it? And was it a sort of a new process you had to find in order to do that when you couldn't be in a room with somebody? And yeah, yes and no. Uh, it, it was definitely the way to go because you could set up a schedule with somebody like Tom Mutes and say, okay, every Wednesday or whatever, uh, you, you good for next Wednesday? Yep, let's do it. You know, we had a regularly scheduled thing on the book, and uh, it would be really easy to to write a lot of songs in a short period of time that way. Um, but really, as far as the process of writing, it's not much different than being in a room with somebody uh, I found. And that's why I was sort of, uh, after we'd done it a few times, I was telling people, Hey man, this is going to be the future, you know, getting together over whatever format zoom or whatever to do these is just too easy. And it, you know, I used to have to make a trip to um, to Nashville, which is four and a half hours from, from where I live. And I would have to stay down there for two or three nights, get hotel rooms, and just, you know, set up as many appointments as I could. And it was always productive, but, man, it's just a pain, you know. And, mm-hmm. and this is so much easier. It's just, you know, and... In some ways, it's even easier than that the other way because you, you, a lot of us had gotten to the point where we're sitting in a room with each other with our laptops, and we're both, you know, doing this, and we're both looking at the internet for ideas about rhymes and phrases and uh, you know idioms and things like that that you use in songwriting, and uh, so it's just a lot easier when I'm sitting here at my my desk and I don't have to still got coffee in front of me. You know, I miss the fellowship, but, uh, Oh, it's a no brainer for as far as productivity for, for songwriting. So, yeah. And I guess I think it's still, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, I guess that episode, the possibility of writing with all sorts of people you couldn't write with otherwise as well, just in terms of time schedules and geography. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I'm, I'm writing with, uh, one of the guys from the Hen House Prowlers, uh, Stephen Mojan, put us together. And, uh, you know, all we have to do, have is a window of time, and we're, we're there. I don't have to go to Minnesota or wherever, Wisconsin, where those guys live, you know. Um, I've written with people from California a lot. I write with Rick Lang. He and I have written probably 50 or 60 songs, maybe more than that, and he lives in New Hampshire, um, you know. So us getting together is just as easy as my next door neighbor and I getting together on this. So um, it's bound to be the way things are going to continue to be done. Hmm. Yeah. And one of the people that you obviously were working with was Steve Gully, who co-wrote Through the Window of a Train with you all those years ago, didn't he? And that's been a, a sort of long-term partnership. It was great to see um, that record that record come out. I know it sort of tinged with sadness because Steve wasn't around to see it come out, but, um, but it's a beautiful record and, uh, you know, amazing that you managed to get that out because, you know, if you, if, uh, if, if schedules had delayed you by a year, 
it wouldn't have happened. And it's, you know, just as a music fan, I'm glad it's there. Oh, thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. We, Steve was such a good friend, such a great guy and uh, talented. So just a really talented guy. I always thought that I never understood why Steve was never nominated for IBMA male vocalist of the year because he certainly deserved it. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, I don't think that record, it was very close to not coming out because I think it was the very last thing that he worked on. Uh, and so the record company wanted to put it out and as a tribute to Steve. And I was like, yeah, you know, I think that'd be good. And he was very proud of the record and, and he would definitely have wanted it to come out. But, uh, boy, he left a big hole. Um, it's just uh, difficult. Um, I think about him every day. You know, he was a, a, a force. Uh, just his personality was a force. And he was a force for good. He was just one of those guys that he'd give you the shirt off his back, you know. And, and, I, and that's a cliche, except with, with Steve. <laughs> He's one of those guys that really would have done it, you know. And uh, I've seen him do it. Same did for people he didn't even know. And uh, we actually wrote a song about one of those, uh, Angel on Its Way. Uh, it's a true story uh, where he just stopped to help. He and his family stopped to help an, a little lady at Christmas time who needed a ride home. You know? And uh, so, yeah, the world's not as good a place without Steve Gulley, but uh, I really uh, am grateful for, for the time that we had together and, what we were able to accomplish and the songs we were able to write. Nobody loved it more than Steve, man. We'd go up to his place and I just looked forward to seeing him and talking to him and laughing. God, he was such a funny guy, you know? And uh, the way that we would write, when he would get really into something, he'd get up and start pacing around looking out the window. And I knew, okay, right then, he's getting ready to come up with something, you know? And generally it was a breakthrough from wherever we were. Uh, or a direction I wouldn't have thought of at all. So he was, a, he was an amazing guy. There's something incredibly poignant about the title of that record, which is called Still Here. And I don't know if you had that title, you know, in mind before and whether you sort of rethought it um, in light of Steve not being around. But there is something beautiful about it, just the, you know, for any kind of creative person, the way one of the ways they remain still here is in the work they produce and the memories people have. And that's there's something... Um, Something simple but beautiful about that as an album title. Totally agree. Totally by accident. Uh, we already had that song written a couple of years before we went in the studio, and uh, it was a it was kind of a bitter song about a fellow who went up to work in the north northern United States, and he uh, just like a lot of Appalachians did, he hated it. But he never left. <laughs> He's still there after 40 some years, you know, in a dirty factory town when he was raised out in the country, you know. And uh, we talked about that and just about how we would want to phrase it. And uh, then to have it happen, I totally agree with you. I thought of the same thing, you know. He's still here. He's still here with us and uh, in a lot of ways, and his music's definitely. I think it's going to be with us for quite a while. So, uh, yeah. It sort of it put me in mind of like in a couple of ways, just both the, the the title, but also just that sense of um, remembrance and and celebrating somebody's output. It's just I, I, 
the the book that you co-wrote about Tony Rice, the title of that still inside, which you can read in the way of sort of inner calm, or you can read in a way of a person who is something of an enigma is still sort of shrouded in mystery. And, but again, a figure that is much loved in the music world and beyond. And, and there's been such a, a wonderful celebration of who Tony was and what he did over the past couple of years, which has been just sort of joyous to watch despite, despite the circumstances that brought it all out. And you've been a big part of that. And I'd love to talk about the book because it's a, it's a brilliant book and it's a sort of fascinating book in many ways, but I'd really like you to tell us before we start your story of how you first met Tony. Cause I read somewhere you first met Tony at Winterhawk festival in quite unusual circumstances. I actually met Tony before that, uh, back in the, in the mid eighties at a uh, festival. I was just a, a fan who, who wanted to come see him and, it was at the uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken Festival in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, which is a huge festival. They used to have over Bill Monroe's birthday in September down there. And uh, it was at the Gall House uh, where they used to have IBMA years later. Uh, but it was outside on the Belvedere Plaza, and they had over 100,000 people there every, every year uh, at this free bluegrass festival sponsored by Kentucky Fried Chicken. And Tony was in the height of his, uh, you know, his abilities, I believe, at that time, mid-80s. And uh, his voice was so strong and powerful and no hint of, of what happened eventually to his voice. And I got to just say hi to him. Uh, he, and he was so, so nice, you know, didn't have any idea who I was, obviously, and, and I was nobody. And he... He was just very nice, and um, I don't know. Man, he took he took that crowd by the throat. <laughs> he was he was ruthless. His playing and his singing. Um, and it's funny at that same festival, I was a grad student. I was working on a PhD in history at Miami University up in Oxford, Ohio, which is only about an hour and a half from Louisville, uh, or less than that. And so I came down with a friend of mine who's also a guitar player, and he was a PhD student in public planning. And uh, we picked a lot and talked about Tony and all that, you know. And uh, we said we got there early, and it was the band contest. And the band that won it was called Classified Grass, and it had this little female fiddler named Allison Krause in it. Mm -hmm. And I had never seen her before. And uh, – not long after that, she put out her first album on Rounder, like a year later, year or two later. And so that was, a, you know, I saw her. I didn't meet her there, but I did see her. But I did get to meet Tony there. But the first time I actually talked to Tony was when I was on stage with Allison at Winterhawk. And uh, we did our, we played right before Tony Rice unit. And, uh, of course, you know, here I am on stage playing. Um, it's not lost on me. He's backstage. Mm. You know, mm. <laughs> I did look at the schedule. I knew who was coming up. And, uh, of course, people really went nuts for Allison at that festival. We finished our song, and the place just erupted. You know, and we went backstage, and I, I broke a string on the last downstroke of the last song. And... Uh, I went backstage, the crowd's still going up, and I was like, what are we going to do, what are we going to do, for an encore, you know? And Rice is back there, and he says, here, man, hey, hey, and he called me by name, you know? I was like, 
he even knows my name, you know, and hands me the antique. He says, here, play this. And I was like, oh, dude. And uh, I could barely get through it, you know. Everybody had big old possum grins. Allison was looking over. She's just grinning, you know, because there I was playing antique. And uh, I got through it somehow and gave it back to him. Didn't drop it. That would have been par for the course for me. But but he just struck me, man. As, and, and the fact that he knew my name and he went out of his way to talk to me. And later on, he said some really nice things about my plan. And, and we got to talk for quite a while and started developing a little bit of a friendship, you know, in a relationship after, in, during that time. And, and then after I left Allison's band, uh, I had already, I think it was actually already in blue highway. And, uh, yeah, we started playing some shows with Tommy and we were hanging out again, talking, you know, and uh, during that time, too, Wyatt Rice and I would have these epic jam sessions. And we would go, I think, abetted by adult beverages. Uh, we would hole up in a hotel room and just pick, man, for hours. And uh, we did that a couple, three different times. So we must have been playing with the unit, you know, uh, wherever that show was. So I got to talk to Tony a little bit. And I'd had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to write a book about him. And I said, I just brought it up. I just said, man, have you thought about having a, you know, doing an autobiography or having a biography written about you? And he said, actually, I have, yeah. So he said, and you know what? I think you'd be the perfect guy to write. And so I didn't even bring it up. All I just said was this. And he said, you would be the guy. And I was like, well, okay. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I had sort of thought about it, but he was the one that brought it, the idea of me doing it. So I got started on it right away at that point. And that was about, it was about the year 2000. And I sent out uh, a whole bunch of email questionnaires and got a bunch of uh, responses. I did one long interview with Tony, started doing some other things too, and then got bogged down about four years into it. And uh, uh, Pam Ross suggested that I hook up with Caroline Wright, who had written an article on Tony for Listener Magazine. It was a really cool piece, just a super great article. And I, I was a fan of that article. And so we started collaborating from that point, and we finished the book. It came out in 2010. So it took 10 years from conception to, to finish. And Tony, we did massive interviews with Tony for this book. I think there were five altogether, massive interviews. And when we transcribed these things and read them, it was like, who's going to tell this story better than Tony? Cause he was so articulate. I mean, you know, I said, I told Caroline, I said, I think we'd be better off here just putting this whole thing in Tony's voice, you know, and editing it together to make it sound like it's just Tony talking about his life. Cause it's almost that way. Anyway, it's almost perfect. We didn't have to change a whole lot at all, you know, or even in the editing process. So that's how we, that dictated the format where we have Tony telling his story in his own words, you know, in a chronological format. And then each chapter of the way there are 
all these other interviews that we did, we have these other voices. So it's kind of like a Greek chorus, you know, where you have these other voices that come out and say, but also this happened, you know? Uh, so that's why the thing is structured. Like it is a lot of people ask us, how'd you come up with that structure? Well, it was Tony's eloquence is what dictated that structure. So, and there's something really, um, there's something really cool about that structure because it's like you sort of say Greek chorus, but they are as a Greek chorus with sort of commenting on the action almost. And there's that, um, when somebody writes their own memoir, their own biography, there's always a sense that they only see things from one perspective. When a bunch of other people write something about somebody, there's a load of perspectives and there's something very cool about Tony's story. But then a bunch of other people who were around him at that point in the story, remembering what they remember, which doesn't always tie up or, might sometimes, yeah. you know, comment on how Tony was. And it's, it's, it seems like an incredibly open sort of collaborative thing. And, and, and it must have been interesting for Tony. You know, I've heard you say that he was incredibly happy with the result of the book. But when people talk about him as being, you know, withdrawn and a bit of an enigma and difficult to get to know, you know, people have talked about that since his passing. But obviously, he must have read those things people said about him at the time. And I think there's something like a, a sort of, generosity of spirit of allowing a book about yourself in that format to be out there with all the contradictions and all the, you know, all the different viewpoints. And there's something, there's something quite unique about it. I think as a book in that I'm way. Glad you, I'm glad you think that, uh, at the time we had misgivings about it, but Tony loved it. And, um, uh, he didn't mind so much that a lot of other people had different recollections of certain things. Um, now a few of the other people that I won't name, uh, did mind that Tony's recollection of events was quite different from what they remembered. I guess you'll have that. Uh, it didn't bother me because I'm sorry, you know, um, we always tend to think that eyewitness testimony is infallible. It's like the first source. Well, no, it's not. Uh, it, it's one of the most fallible sources that you can have. So I think that's why it's, it's a good idea to have as many different perspectives as you can at the same events so that people can make up their own minds about what probably happened. You know, um, I will say that Tony's recollection, man, it was microscopic in detail and really spot on most of the time according to most of the people that we talked to, uh, you know, um, microscopic, I say, I guess thinking of the watches, you know, cause he always, he, he spent the last 10 years of his life or so looking in a microscope, these Accutron watches. Um, he was obsessed with precision. And I think that came out in his, his playing and his attention to detail and things like the watches, you know, yeah and you don't it is i think um it's one of the fascinating things hearing people talk about is playing because it's a lot of it is in the details and the things that from my, from my point of view as a guitarist and a musician there's things that i hear in tony's playing but hearing other people talk about it it just brings out other facets i went to a, a sort of weekend bluegrass camp over here in the uk a couple of weeks ago and i had the guitar tutor there a guy called bry um was just played us, I've waited as long as I can, and said, listen to Tony play the guitar on this. 
and I, well, I've heard this, but this is probably my favourite single bluegrass recording of all time. I know this. And he played it. He went, listen to what he does when the vocal starts. And his volume on the rhythm just dropped completely. And then mm-hmm. punctuating between the phrases, some quite strident sort of little rhythm fills and, and just bits and pieces. But then when the mandolin's playing over the second verse, to fill it, he's out of the way completely. And just the whole, that precision of intent as well as execution of knowing when to step in and step out and just every time I talk to somebody about his playing I learn something you know and I go back and listen again and it's it's fascinating I'm glad you mentioned the rhythm because people tend to think of Tony as just as lead guitarist who redefined the way lead guitarists played in bluegrass but man if you're a musician it's that rhythm is that rhythm is where it's at. The rhythm is what actually changed the entire sound of bluegrass in my ears. Uh, before Tony, there was a different bluegrass rhythm sound, and after Tony, there's this new thing uh, that it's not just new chord changes from jazz or you know ideas and inflections that weren't there before or things that came from Clarence White. It's this powerful approach to to uh, to rhythm as a as a way to define the sound of the music, and I don't think there's any any other instrument that's changed the sound of bluegrass in the last fifty years more than Tony Rice's rhythm guitar, and that's saying a lot. But uh, I, I've talked to people that I know that have thought deeply about this same thing, Ron Stewart and uh, Dan Tomansky, a bunch of different people, and they all agree with me. It's like, oh, yeah, that's it, man. That's the thing. That's the sound right there. And it's more than just the glue. It's like it's more than just a background. It's It changes everything. It changes the entire dynamic of the music, and uh, we have Tony to thank for that. Um, that rhythm, man, that will never be duplicated. It'll never be surpassed, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, I love rhythm guitar. It's just it's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, and I try not to follow Tony. I mean, you have to. You know, like I said, he's changed the sound of the music. But um, within that framework, I'm trying to come up with my own deal, which is what he would want you to do. That's what he always told everybody. Man, do your own thing. I've done my thing. And I thought he had a great perspective on that. He said, I just wanted to be Clarence White for a long time. And he said, I couldn't do it. As much as hard as I tried, I could not be Clarence White. But what emerged out of my limitations was my style. (laughs) So I thought, that's a really cool way to look at it. Uh, First of all, to think that Tony had limitations. But, (laughs) you know, you look at it and say, well, yeah, he was trying to be his hero and he couldn't be his hero in that he had to be himself and it came out within that framework. Clarence changed him forever. JD changed him forever. Um, and that's, so. that's particularly interesting to talk about JD there. Cause I mean, I've, I've interviewed Chris Eldridge and Dan Tominsky and they both were like, I, you know, I love Tony's lead playing, but if I had to choose that or the rhythm, I'd keep the rhythm every day. Um, and I chatted to Marcel Ardans from the lessons of the Marcel YouTube channel. And he was, you know, talking about a video of Tony he'd seen and somebody in the crowd had said, can you explain to me how to play rhythm? And he said, no, cause there's nobody else here. I can't do it on my own. 
Like, doesn't it, it sort of <laughs> doesn't exist unless you're reacting to something. Um, but it's really interesting that you mentioned JD because even just today on the Facebook group, people were chatting about the influence that JD Crow had on Tony and his sense of rhythm and timing, but also, and I've heard you talk very eloquently before about sort of what they brought out in each other as well. But there's just, um, there seems to be a really strong thread there of, of, of Clarence influencing Tony's right hand technique potentially and, and JD having a big effect on the timing. I, I, you just nailed it. That's it. Uh, as far as I can tell, Tony's right hand technique, very, very close to Clarence's. And uh, he never really deviated from that, using that thumb for a lot of things that most players get from this back and forth motion with their pick. He would use a thumb to do it and not the whole finger like that, uh, not the combination of the two. Um, and, you know, his right hand, his left hand's a really interesting study too because he had this clamp thing like a classical guitar player that let him put a maximum amount of pressure so he never had buzzes, and he also had great intonation. That's something a lot of players don't think about is intonation. But he rarely, rarely muffed a note, hit a note, buzzed a note, anything like that. And that ain't easy to do, man. And a lot of it came from his technique. Um, now, J.D., to my ear, if you listen to Tony's rhythm playing in the Bluegrass Alliance and before uh, – you know, you can hear Clarence. He's trying to play a little bit of Clarence, but man, after a few years in the in the New South, you can tell he's been transformed by that that powerhouse of J.D. Crow's banjo, the syncopation in Crow's playing. I know what that's like because I, um, you know, when you play off against that, you do things differently as a, as a rhythm guitar player. Uh, things you would not do normally. I'm I'm always just listening to whoever I'm playing with. And if I'm playing with somebody like Jason or Burleson, our banjo player, or, uh, you know, uh, Ron Stewart has played on several of my solo records, man, I'm just trying to react to what they're doing and feel it. And, uh, and that's what Tony did too, but he was doing it with J.D. Crow. And, you know, I was originally a banjo player. I got to say, Crow is my all-time favorite bluegrass musician. He really is. I was, I became a guitar player by accident because the band I was in got a better banjo player. Hmm. So I had to switch the guitar overnight. That's why my hand is weird when I play with the right hand and all that. But, but Crow to this day is just, there's something about that playing, man. He just, <laughs> he had this feel, this touch that, uh, I've never heard anybody else do. And uh, it was just, it was just a marvel. I mean, when he started playing, my mouth just blew open. You know? I was just like, well, that's it right there. You know, even, I mean, I know everybody said that about Earl when they first heard that style and including Crow, but there was just something about JD's playing then that I don't know where he, he was probably tempered that way by Jimmy Martin. He'd probably say that he would have said that. In fact, I've heard him say it. You know, he was tempered by Jimmy the same way that Tony was tempered by him. And uh, I think it's a good way to look at it. You already had your style pretty much, but he's tempering it like you temper fine steel. And uh, golly, that that combination of Crow and Rice—I don't know. It's just 
it's I've never heard anything to beat it, and I don't think I ever will in bluegrass music. And it's I think what um, the interesting word in all of that for me is the word reaction that you used about it. You know about listening and responding in real time to like you do with any conversation. You know, you like what like we're doing now, but you, the difference in music is you're both doing it at the same time over each other, right. under each other, and around each other. And um, and it's something that is as as a student of music and somebody learning to play. And you know the the revelation that playing backup guitar or backup anything, but backup guitar particularly with other people is as much an improvisation as playing a solo over a tune in that you're constantly adjusting what you do behind somebody working out where to put a run, where not to put a run, where to play a bit quietly. Sometimes like in a noisy session where not to play at all. So you can hear a quiet guitar over in the other corner. Or, um, sure. and, and that, that thing of real time adjusting what you do to somebody else is. And it's, it helps to be an empath. And Tony was a very empathic player. He kind of knew what somebody was going to play before they played it, depending on who it was, whether it was Bill Emerson or J.D. Crow. And he did play differently behind those two guys. It's it's very subtle, but it's there. And it's uh, behind different mandolin players. He played very differently behind uh, Skaggs than he did uh, Grisman. You know, the Grisman thing was a was its own deal, and he took that whole thing that he developed under Crow and took it to that form of music that Grisman was coming up with and was such a big part of it because of that, just that rhythm, man. It's just, it's at the heart of that music as well as everything Tony did after that. And yeah, it's, it's all about being an empath and trying to be sensitive. If you don't catch it the first time around, you sure will the second time you play it, you know, or Tony, Tony did when he heard it, man, it's like, I got a feeling I know what he's, this cat's going to do right here. And if you play five hours a night, six nights a week, you know, every week of the year, it ain't going to take you long, especially with J.D. Grove, to figure out, you know, man, this is what I need to do right here. Um, it's subtle. It's it's ineffable in a way. You can't teach it. I've seen people try to teach the rust rhythm. Can't do it can't do it it's just uh, and i think the interesting thing know. is that that he couldn't either because you know you I've, I've watched the videos that he did with homespun and i've interviewed happy tram about the recording of those and he was saying you know tony maybe not as many not as much as some other people he wasn't necessarily a natural teacher he knew how to do what right. he could do and he fully understood that and but to be able to yeah. explain finger by finger pick stroke by pick stroke how he did what he did just, you know, and in the end, Happy would sit with him and go, well, can you just play it a little bit slower so we can see what you're doing? And it just, it, yeah. it was so um, sort of. Yeah, Happy was a big part of those. He was a big part of those videos uh, because he knew what questions to ask and what direction to take. Uh, a good producer can do that, you know, in any context, but uh, he definitely did there. Now, Wyatt's video is pretty cool. It's probably the closest thing I've seen to actually trying to, dissect some of that rhythm and show some of the techniques that are there that why actually learn by just being around Tony, you know, um, Tony did show him a few things, but most of that style, you, <laughs> you gotta either, you just gotta pick it up. You know, you can't really learn it 
out of a book, you definitely can't. It's, uh, it's hard for one person to teach it to another. And you did um, an instructional DVD of your own a while, a while back, didn't you? And I really like mm-hmm. the sort of structure of the way the way you talk about guitar and, and having, a, I think, a clear construct of how to explain what to think about is always really good in those situations. So you talk about the five T's of timing, tone, tuning, technique, and taste. Um, and I think it's a really cool way of looking at it because each of those things, like particularly with taste coming as the final thing, because that's then how you express who you are as a human being through your music which is sort of our job as musicians is to be as as much us as we can be um because nobody else can do it and we can't ever be anybody else uh but it's really then it's really i just thought it's a really unique approach to explaining how to think about an instrument well you were talking about happy with uh tony dan miller did the same thing with me because I had a structure in mind and I would do it at these camps. He saw me doing it at a few camps and he's, he was it's his idea for me to do the video, but he had ideas about fine tuning some of the approaches that I had about uh, azimuth, pick azimuth and things that I had talked about, but he would have said, now, what do you mean exactly by that? Do you mean this and that? No, I mean this. Okay. Well, explain that now. And so he would direct me, in ways that I would never have thought of doing it myself. So he was a big part of, of that. I still think, man, the the fundamentals are where it's at. In fact, I just saw a, it was pretty cool. I saw a Tony clip uh, from Instagram. Have you seen those Tony clips? Mm. That, uh, there's that website that has uh, all these little miniature clips of Tony. And one of them was a where he was talking and he said, not enough people pay attention to the fundamentals. And he said the very same thing. And I had never seen him say that or do that, but it was really cool to say that he, he think thought of the same thing, you know, um, obviously he was thinking about tone a lot when he played and how the best way is to get that with your right hand. And, uh, you know, timing, man, <laughs> he is the cat that, that showed everybody how that's supposed to be done in bluegrass rhythm guitar. So, um, you know, um, the whole thing too, with tuning, I, man, we've all forgotten how to tune by ear hmm. in this music because we have these great electronic tuners. And my point in the video that I did was you can take one of those and it can help you tune your ear again because you can, you can take one of these tuners and then take some other techniques that we can look at like octaves, uh, like a tuning fork, uh, like, and that's what Tony used was a tuning fork. Um, and some of these other ways and, t- and then you use your electronic tuner to see how close you got. So you can help, you can use the tuner to actually tune your ear. Um, I think that's probably the best way to use one. Although I got to admit, we get in these live situations, we're on stage I ain't got time. I will have to use the tuner, you know, to, to rely on. Cause sometimes I'm even MCing at the same time I'm tuning and you, you don't have time to do, um, the ways of tuning that, uh, you know, you can't hear for one day. You get, you know, backstage before show, it's really tough to hear. So you, you depend on that tuner. Um, you know, but they, you know, they had similar, challenges years ago and somehow they found a way to do it and my point is nobody that i know of could tune a guitar better than tony ross 
of all the things he did well, that may be one of the very best that he did. And when he played, it sounded the way it did, uh, partially because of the way he was able to tune the guitar. I hate to say that, but it's really true. It's really a, uh, a function of how good his ear was uh, that the guitar always sounded as good as it did. Because I go back and listen to stuff I've done, man, I'm like, gee, I wish that string there wasn't just a tiniest bit sharp, but it is, and I'll have to live with that. And it wasn't all the way through the song. It was in one area. So that, at that point, we're talking about intonation again, you know, and um, ways to make your guitar stay in tune once you get it there. Um, very subtle stuff, but very basic stuff. If you don't have a command of those fundamentals, it's going to be hard to be a advancing guitar player to make good, rich call. It's interesting because I, I, my acoustic, my main acoustic guitar, which is an Eastman, has got relatively chunky frets on it. And I'm used to playing that. And I and I bought um, mm-hmm. a Nashville Telecaster, which has quite thin, quite high frets. And for the first three weeks of having it, everything I played was out of tune, even though the guitar was in tune, because the frets are so high and I was fretting everything too hard. I was pushing right. everything yeah. sharp. And I'd never even considered that that was... And I thought, well, what do I do? I've been playing guitar like this for years. How do? I? And you just adjust and you learn like subtleties of yeah. pressure and... You know, your ear listens a bit more and your fingers find a way and all of a sudden my technique's a little bit more precise and a little yeah. bit less sort of full of tension than it used to be, which is... It's it's really cool that you play that Eastman too. Uh, actually, I've I played a... Sean Lane has an Eastman. It's one of the better sounding guitars I've ever heard. Um, and, and, you know, they're fine guitars. Um, people don't think of them in the same, you know light as East as Martins and Gibson's, but, um, and there, you know, there's a reason we play these old vintage Martins because they do, they sound pretty incredible. But I, on my last record, I used a Johnson Carolina series guitar to record a couple of tunes in open tuning. And because it's got great action on it and I was able to tune that thing down and still get really good intonation and good tone and still had it enough tension so it doesn't, didn't buzz on the, when I dropped the tuning. So it worked better than the Martin did uh, on that, so I decided to go ahead and use it. I always loved what David Greer would say. You know, I, I, I've done a bunch of picking with David over the years, and a bunch of camps, a bunch of workshops, and I was in a workshop one time with David, and uh, people were talking about strings and picks and all that normal stuff, you know, what kind of strings you use, what kind of picks you use. And he raised his hand and said, can I answer that? And I thought, oh, no, this could be bad, you know. And uh, he, he said, it don't matter. He said, it don't matter what kind of string you use, it don't matter what kind of pick you use. He said, it really don't matter what kind of guitar you use as long as you love to play it and you play it enough. And he's right, man, because – I, for years, I played one of the worst sounding guitars I could could play, and I thought if I can make this sound good, you know, what am I going to be able to do on a on a vintage Martin or a vintage Gibson or something like that? So that helped me, and I would always play a guitar with higher action. So when I go to a regular guitar, it's like I was playing butter, you know. Uh, I think there's something to be said for that. Um, it really doesn't matter. All those things are secondary. What really matters is that you love it and that you love it enough to play it. It's like, uh, <laughs> he said somebody brought him up at like a D45 or a D41 
let him play it. He handed it back to him and he said, don't you like it? And he said, nope. <laughs> he said, uh, well, it's a D45. It's got all these inlays on it. You know, it's a highest model Martin makes. And he said, I don't care. He said, it's a tool. He said, I've got plenty of hammers. I don't put rhinestones in them. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, why would you put a jewel in your, in your, in your tools? And that's a, uh, it's a good way to look at it because it is a tool to express yourself. Um, so uh, I kind of got to go with David there on that one. Yeah, and it's it's funny because that Eastman that I've got cost cost me about four hundred pounds used. It's like it's one of the lower end ones that they make, um, but I like it. And every now and again, I'll go into a guitar shop or I'll be at a jam or I'll pick up somebody else's guitar, and and sometimes their guitar sounds nicer than mine. And I think I wish I had this, but invariably it costs about six times as much and i haven't played anything under about two thousand pounds that i like more yet and so right. you know I, yeah. I can either spend most of my time wondering about what are the guitars to buy or i can spend most of my time playing the one i've got that's what that's you just nailed it you just nailed it i think um i can't remember who said it i think it might have been brian sutton in one of the chats over artist works where i take lessons with him he said it, you know if people spent as much time like learning to play their instrument as they do thinking about all the variables. And if people spent as much money on lessons as they spend on trying different picks and different strings and, you know, just that sense of, um, just get on with it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, yeah, I'm as guilty as anybody of not right. doing that. I, I love looking at different stuff, but I've tried different. Well, you know. I, I am too. You know, I mean, I, I play and picks like I go back and forth. I play, different ones, you know, I do love those blue chip picks, uh, but I'm really unusual with picks because I play on the uh, shoulder of the pick. I don't play on the point. So I like to have a pick and it's an advantage there because it, my pick never slips because I have more of the surface of the pick on my thumb when I hold it like that. But the main reason I do it is the tone is better for me when I play on that corner. It's more rounded. It gives it a better a better feel to me. And the lead is a challenge, but it sounds very different doing it there. And I kind of like that. So I, I thought about actually flipping the pick around and playing with the point when I play a lead. Um, but that's too difficult to do. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'll just live with this. I don't mind. It's a little muddier, but it's, it's more distinctive to me. So I'm just stuck with that. And then strings, I, you know, I like elixir strings because they last forever and I don't have to change them. Uh, I, mean, I hate to change strings, but uh, and guitars, I have a bunch of guitars, man. I've, I've got guitar acquisition syndrome, hmm. gas, like a lot of players. But my thirty-four D eighteen is still the one that sounds the best to me, to my ears. So I end up recording a lot with it. But like I said, not on everything. I I played it, a Johnson, played Gibsons on every one of my solo records on several songs. These uh, so. I'm not married to that single guitar and I've used a lot of different guitars on blue highway records. So you know, I'm, I'm all about playing man. That 10,000 hour rule is really true. You put 10,000 hours in on your instrument or whatever it is, you're going to be better. You know, talent is very important, but I think it's a little overrated, you know, behind every, every prodigy, there's also a ton of time with the instrument. I'm thinking of Chris Daly and people like that. You know, it was homeschooled. So 
finish all your homework on Monday, dude, you've got 14, 16 hours a day the rest of the week, and you live with that thing in your hands, you're going to be really, really, really good. So, um, And I did that too. I, I played – there was a time there when I played 15 hours a day, you know, if I could get away with it. Um, and so, you know, you just got to play as much as you possibly can just to get familiar with the thing. And I think that's just, the Chris Thiele thing is really interesting because I was listening to an interview with him the other day and he was talking about um, Roger Federer. He's a huge tennis fan, Chris Thiele, and loves Roger Federer. And he was saying, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just people underestimate how much effort you have to put into something to make it look like it doesn't cost you any effort at all. Like that comes out, out <laughs> and he knows as well as anybody does. But, you know, people look at Roger Federer Absolutely. or Chris Thiele and go, makes you look so easy. And, yeah, and you know yeah, it's yeah. because he spent hours and hours and hours where it wasn't easy just incrementally making oh, it slightly easier every day, every week, every month. Oh, yeah, man. And there's no no substitute for it. Um, I've, I tried just rehearsing, and it would just drive me crazy just rehearsing. So I had to make it fun. I would play along with records. And then I got to where I would play in front of a television, uh, which is supposedly a really bad habit. But what I found with that is – um, I would get to this space in between where I wasn't really paying attention to the television and, and I wasn't really paying attention to what I was playing. And all of a sudden I realized I came up with a tune or a melody and I immediately record it. And I do that. I still do that all the time that I can uh, to try to get in that in between space. And uh, that's where the real creativity comes from. Um, a lot of the tunes I've written and a lot of the melodies I've got, came from that so you know so that's a lovely conscious lovely phrase for it the in-between space yeah there's a there's a song title yeah it's really <laughs> hey man <laughs> space in between man. yeah it's really cool um i'm aware we've we're sort of coming up towards time now but i'd love to talk to you quickly about another couple of bits if that's all right um one is i know you've been working on a box set of tony's music mm-hmm. um and that, and again, I, it sort of seems to come back that wherever we talk about, we're talking about structure here. But the structure of that is really interesting, and that each disc is sort of reflects a different um, either thread of his music, or you know, there's a I believe there's a disc of live recordings, a disc of um, kind of bluegrass stuff, a disc of collaborations. We uh, were doing this for Craft Records. Uh, Ken Irwin, who's one of the rounder, the founders of Rounder Records. And I, uh, he worked with me. He came with me and wanted me to do it. And so we've been kind of collaborating on it in a way, although I did all the writing and, and put all the material together for it and structure and all that. We wanted to do a live disc. We ended up not being able to do that because we didn't have enough live stuff that we had control over the quality. And uh, we wanted uh, – we. I, thought we were going to be able to get some of the stuff that Tony did at the Birchmere that was tightly controlled and recorded by Bill Wolf over with these great microphones and just sounded so good, perfect stuff. And uh, for one reason or another, we were not able to do that. So maybe in the future there will be another project that comes up. It's just live stuff mm-hmm. that Tony's from those settings, and that's going to be amazing when it comes out. There's a a whole set that he did with the seldom scene is just incredible. No way. Um, and you know, a lot of the unit stuff from the eighties when he was making these masterpiece records, like me and my guitar, and native American and all that. Um, 
cold on the shoulder. So all that stuff is there. But what we ended up doing was using previously recorded material just in, in a way we wanted to show the, the spectrum of Tony's career and all the different styles of music that he played. And now there's a lot of people uh, that he's gone. I hate to say it, there's going to be more and more people that haven't heard a lot of that stuff. Mm. They don't have all those records. They didn't, they didn't wait with bated breath like the rest of us did for the new Tony Ross record to come out like I did. And um, so they may not have that connection. And it's really cool to have like a, a whole box set that has these different songs from all these different segments of his career. And uh, we did have a few live things in there, um, you know, but we just didn't have enough that we were able to concentrate on one live disc. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I really, really was thrilled to be able to work on it and do extensive notes on each song and uh, learned a lot about the songs themselves, which we all knew a lot about songs like this, but when I did the deep dive on these songs, you know, and find out things about them that I, I, I had no idea, you know, that's really cool. I, and, and uh, I can't wait for people to hear it. Did you, it's going to be coming out. Did you sort of have next year? Sorry, I interrupted you there. It's coming out. 2023. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and then did you have access to the, the sort of the tapes for that to remaster for CD? Um, uh, yeah, it's it's going to be uh, remastered from the original, uh, from you know the original tapes because they all have access to those, except for the ones that we're able to get uh, from Warner Brothers and some of the other labels for some of the material that we have on here. Because and there are a few things on here that I guarantee even the most ardent Tony Ross fan has not heard of Tony in some of these contexts. Um, there's some really, really cool, um, things I didn't know about that friends of mine had heard, uh, of Tony doing this filling in with this person or that person. Mm. And, uh, we were able to bring out quite a few of those and get a hold of them. So I'm, I'm really glad they're coming. And it's cool about the remasters. Cause I read, I read or heard somewhere that Tony wasn't always as happy as he could have been with some of the, some of the way that originals were transferred onto CD um, and was sort of keen for people to track down original vinyl where they could. And a lot of people had told us they would like for us to do vinyl, uh, a vinyl box set. And uh, I would love to have done that, but there's just no way you can do a comprehensive box set. It would be too heavy to carry, <laughs> you know, Tony Ross. But with a CD, you actually can. So, you know, craft specializes in CD compilations. They've done dozens of them for people from Miles Davis on down, you know, just the great jazz players, which is really cool too, because Tony would be thrilled to be part of that collection with those people. Those were his heroes. It's, uh, it's, it's really, really, uh, going to be, a, a, I think a big project, uh, for fans of Tony and, uh, just glad to be part of it. And one, one final thing I'd love to ask you about is um, you're writing a book on bluegrass. And I, I find this really cool because I love Neil Rosenberg's book. I'm always also a big fan of the book Bluegrass Reader, um, which Tristan Scroggins mm -hmm. put me onto when I interviewed him. 
but both of them sort of mm-hmm. stop at a certain point in time. And I, I believe you're right. sort of picking up and moving the story on from there, which would be a wonderful thing, I think. Yeah, and that's the the whole idea behind doing the book is we felt like it needed updating because even, even Neil would mention from time to time when I would talk to him that it would be great. He was not the one to do it. He's too, he's done pretty much with it, with that part of it. He's not going to do another history of bluegrass, but he feels like it should be updated from where he left off, which is the mid seventies in essence. And, uh, you know, which is cool to me. And I thought, well, Hey, that's when I got into bluegrass was the mid seventies. So this would be kind of like, it could be biographical. It could be, you know, it could be, it could have several different levels to it, layers to it. And I'm still working on that. Um, and a matter of fact, this pandemic and moving, we've been building a house for the last year and a half. And we just moved into it. As you can tell, the boxes everywhere still behind me. Um, but that's set me back on this book. So I've got to get back into it and get to work on it. Um, but it's it's a big project, and a lot of people have tried it. I know John Weisberger was doing it for a while. Uh, a couple other people were going to pick up and do the sequel to Neil's book. But it's so well thought of in in the bluegrass scholarship world. Uh, Tommy Goldsmith, who did the bluegrass reader that you mentioned, mm. he's a friend of mine. We we talk often. He has a book coming out on the Stanley Brothers, and I've he's thrown a few things to me uh, ideas and I've helped him a little bit and he's, he's undoubtedly going to be helping me too with, with mine when I get to that phase. But, uh, um, he's a very disciplined writer, does a really, really good job. I love his book on Earl Scruggs. I don't know if you got a chance to read that. No, no, I haven't enough to take that. Oh, it's so good. So, so good. To me, it's the best thing written about Scruggs. Uh, just love the way that it's, uh, it's put together. And, uh, Tommy was a journalist and his writing is, is not academic at all, but it does cover academic sources of the music. You know, it could be, uh, he's just really, really good. And, uh, I want to make my book like that too. I don't want it to be academic. I don't want it to be a dissertation. I want it to be something that everybody can, that loves bluegrass and know something about what has happened the last 45, 50 years, we'll be able to get into it and say, oh, yeah, 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 man, I remember that. I didn't know that. but uh, And it's a challenge because I want to take it fully up to the present, and that involves a lot of changes that have happened in bluegrass over the last 15 years. Mm. You know, bluegrass ain't what it was 15 years ago. It ain't what it was 10 years ago. And, you know, now you've got people like Billy Strings that are just changing everything. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, we're, we're probably on the cusp of a renaissance of bluegrass because of people like Billy. And, uh, that can't be a bad thing for, for those of us that love it. You know? Yeah. I think Bill. There's always, there's always a sort of a moment somewhere, whether it's Oh Brother or it's Beverly Hillbillies or it's like Mumford and Sons or whatever, that whether those things are, strictly bluegrass or not there's always something that brings people in and it certainly feels like billy's doing that and molly tuttle's doing it and there's a whole bunch of bluegrass artists who whose output isn't bluegrass necessarily sierra hull and sarah jerose and chris Seely, and you know mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of people putting stuff out that's bringing right. people in um mm-hmm. and that's got to be good it's got to be good and it's all part of this music i think you know i think it's part of the story 
Um, I've taught uh, a course on bluegrass history at Appalachian State University for the last eight years. Every other year I teach it. I think I've taught it four or five times now. And um, that and a few other courses that I've taught at other places have helped me refine these ideas about what's happened in the last 50 years in bluegrass. And so I want it to be a history, but I also want it to be a like a, an exposition, a look at it in a way that is fun and and brings out the fun that's in the music, you know, because it's, it's something ironic about doing an academic discussion of bluegrass, you know, because it's such fun music. <laughs> if you've ever played, anybody's played it knows that. You know? Yeah, it's funny with music in general, it's very easy to sort of pin things down on a board and put them in a glass case and like, but that's not what it, you know, there's about a few years ago, a couple of decades now, a band I was in played at the opening ceremony for a museum of pop music. And I was like, oh, this could be really cool. And I was wandering around going, but this is just a bunch of stuff. It's a bunch of instruments and some clothes people wore on stage and some original artwork from records. Like, this isn't music. This is this is some yeah. cool stuff that exists around music, but this isn't music. And so it is, it's, I think, getting that, yeah. that sort of tone right. And it sounds... Like the, the approach you've got is exactly the kind of book I want to read. Well, I hope so. I hope I'm able to, to finish it. Um, I'm bad at taking a long time to get things out. So you probably just finish it, and then there'll be a, a, another huge media event that changes the course of bluegrass again. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, I think Billy Strings is doing that right now. Uh, it's just insane what he's doing. Uh, he's really taking it places that. No one else has, uh, not even Flat Scruggs, not even Allison. Uh, it's just kind of insane. Uh, the, the number of people and the places that he's expanding to. And uh, it's, it's something that's worthy of a book or a study on its own, you know. There's this whole phenomenon, Billy. And, and like you said, he's not the only one. You know? And it's fascinating. I interviewed... Um... Jared Walker, Billy's mandolin player, uh, beginning of this year, I think it was. And and he said it was fascinating. The first few gigs that he did with Billy, he said, were both the most progressive and the most traditional things he'd ever done at the same time. He just yeah. he couldn't quite get his head around. You look at his set list, man, and it's like the most, it's like half Larry Sparks and half, you know, what Negress Revival would sound like if they were still playing, you know. It's just kind of bizarre. Um, and it, even, you know, past that, it's psychedelic almost in some spots and he's able to get tones with his pedal board that just totally bring it to a different place. And, but then he'll go back and do Red Daisy, you know, and it's just, I loved when he did that on, was it Kimmel that he played on? Yeah. Uh, and he did Red Daisy and they even had the, the old timey outfits, you know, and you can't get more straight ahead bluegrass than that. And uh, I'll tell you what, I've seen some YouTube videos of him guesting, like singing duets with Larry Sparks. Man, that's some of the best stuff I've ever heard. He's He nails it to the wall. And then, uh, you know, I don't want to, I've heard people run Billy's music down. I don't want to hear it. Um, I just think it's it's great and it's it's doing more for bluegrass right now than anything has. So. And I think, yeah, and I think you're totally right. I mean, he's a great singer as well as a great guitar player. He's just, you know, oh, yeah. and it's all, it's all real and it's all authentic and it's all him and he can do whatever he likes with it. 
He sure can. Yeah. And I'm delighted that he is. <laughs> Me too. Well, thanks so much for doing this. It's been a, an absolute treat. I've really enjoyed chatting. Well, thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. I'm sorry we had some technical issues there, but we got it, we got it straight. Yeah, yeah, we got there. And uh, you can call me Paul anytime you like. Okay, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.